It's always much nicer being closer to the people you talk with. So, the subject is about how to manage time and not to procrastinate. But, on the way from the airport here a couple of days ago, I was reminded that one of the sayings, one of my favourite sayings, one of the sayings I've repeated in the BF many, many times, is never do today what you can put off until tomorrow because you might die tonight. And that's a, fa <laughs> a favourite saying of mine because too often just people try and get everything out of the way. They do too much. And in the end, when they die, what is it all really worth? And so that is actually a very sound saying. Never do today what you can put off until tomorrow because you might die tonight. And I tell people in Perth, whenever you come to a function like this and you go home, you're tired and you want to have a bit of a rest and you see all the dishes in the sink needing to be washed, don't wash them yet. Count how many dirty dishes there are in the sink. Count how many clean dishes there are. And if the clean dishes are in the majority, quit while you're ahead. <laughs> and I say that because I just want to balance people. Because sometimes we work too hard, we don't know how to rest. Sometimes rest becomes a low priority and getting the kitchen clean, finishing everything up, takes priority. However, I got into trouble for that. I have to be very careful when I tell these things to people because one of the people, I won't say who she is, she was out there a moment ago, she said her son, her son at home hadn't done his homework and she said, you've got to finish your homework. And he, and he said, said no, no mum, I might I die tonight. Ajahn Brahm says, never do today what you can put up until tomorrow because you might die tonight. <laughs> and so if she's out there somewhere and listening, tell your son, if you don't do your homework, you will die tomorrow for sure when you go to the principal's office. <laughs> so, the moral of that story is, yes, Oh, oh, ten minutes, minutes of meditation. No, we'll no, put that, that off till later. later. <laughs> Can't we no, procrastinate? Okay, okay, we'll procrastinate meditation until somewhere, somewhere in the middle. In the middle. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> putting off until tomorrow what you can do tonight. What am I talking about? Yeah. By learning how to prioritize. That is all the most important thing about time management because we can't do everything. We have to see what's really, really important and do that first of all. When I was in, uh, where was it, in Melbourne recently, in Melbourne, somebody gave me a little gift. It was a little rock. A little rock and on the outside was written, put the big ones in first because some uh, motivational company 
who were teaching executives how to manage their time, told one of the stories in my book, the one called Precious Stones, and they basically they stole it from me, but really we should get sort of copyright, we should get patent rights, we should do this, could make a, no, no patent rights, okay, no patent rights. So we share it out to everybody, but this company was making money out of this, Never mind, they're also making a lot of good people. The story of precious stones is how to prioritize. There was a professor, a business professor, who came into his class one morning and instead of giving the usual lecture, you know, with PowerPoints, he just got out his briefcase and put a, a big jar on the table. A big jar. And then he reached into his briefcase and took out some rocks. And one by one, he put those rocks into the jar. And the students wondered what the heck he was doing, because he did this silently without any explanation. After filling the jar with rocks, he asked his students, is the jar full? And they say, yes, you can't get any more rocks in. He smiled, reached into his briefcase and got some small pebbles out. And he could put those pebbles in the jar in between the spaces of the, uh, the big rocks. And when he could get those small pebbles in the jar, he asked his class, is the jar full now? And of course, they were too smart by now. They said, probably not. He smiled and got some sand out. He poured the sand on top of the jar, shook it, and much of that fine sand found its way in the spaces between the rocks and the pebbles. Once he could get no more sand in the jar, he asked the class, is the jar full? They smiled. No, you'll find some way of getting something more in that jar. He took the water jug and he poured water in the jar and the water found its way into the spaces between the sand, the pebbles and the rocks until the jar was full overflowing with water. And this was a lecture to business students. He asked them, what is the meaning of this lesson? What am I trying to prove to you? Now remember, in business school, sometimes people get the wrong idea. One kid stood up with their hand up. Sir, it shows us, it proves to us, no matter how busy we are, we can always fit something more into our schedule. No, he said. That's not what we're trying to prove to you. What I'm trying to show you is this. If you want to put the big rocks in, you have to put them in first. If you want the precious stones to be scheduled into your day, they have to take priority. You can always fit the other things in later, but if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in. So what are the big rocks in your life? What are the most important things in your life? We have to learn how to prioritize. Our trouble is 
that things which aren't all that important, things which really could wait till later, like washing the dishes, we can put them to later. Spending time with your family, with your kids, that is far more important than having a clean kitchen. No, having some health and peace is far more important than uh, making sure that your career is going well. What are you trying to have a career for anyway? What is the purpose of money? So that your family can be safe, secure, happy and at peace. So why do we sometimes sacrifice happiness and peace? Because we want more money to have happiness and peace. So when you look at it, it doesn't make any sense at all. This is an old story, but one of my favourites. And last March I was travelling through Indonesia and I was interviewed by many Muslim papers and this Muslim journalist, when I told her this story, she started crying because this hit her right inside her heart. She was a single mum and she was trying hard in her career as a journalist to make enough to look after her son without a father to support them. And I told this story and she said she's going to change the way she lives her life. And it was the story of the father who came home from work one evening and his six-year-old son was waiting for him. Daddy, Daddy, welcome home. How much do you earn at work every hour? And the father said, I'm tired, it's got nothing to do with you, shut up. But Daddy, how many dollars do you earn at the office? I told you I'm tired, be quiet. And the son asked the third time, but Daddy, how much do you earn at work? Right, that's it, to your room, you're grounded. He punished his son because his son would not be obedient to his father. And his son went up to his room, closed the door, crying. The reason why we sometimes get angry at our children or angry at the people we love is nothing to do with them, it's sometimes we're tired. Sometimes we're so stressed that one more thing especially an insignificant thing. Why does my son want to know that? Just makes you angry. As soon as he'd had a cup of tea and relaxed, he started to feel guilty. He started to feel bad that he shouted at his son and sent him up to his room. So he thought he should say sorry to his son. He went up to his son's bedroom knocked, opened the door and said to his son, Son, I'm not quite sure, I don't understand why you want to know how much I earn at work, but it's $20 an hour. And the son smiled and said, Thank you, Daddy. Now, can I borrow $10, please? <laughs> And the father was about to get angry a second time. But he thought, I can't get angry at my son twice an evening. 
So he gritted his teeth, got out his wallet and handed his son ten dollars. And his son smiled a second time. Thank you, Daddy. And then the son reached under his pillow where he had saved some money in coins and a few notes. With the extra ten dollars he got from his father, he counted out another ten dollars, making twenty dollars in all. And he handed it to his father and said, Daddy, can I now please have one hour of your time? And that made this Muslim girl weep because she too was so busy making money at work she never had time when she came home just to spend time with her son, with the people we love. And sometimes you know what happens when we don't spend that quality time with our children. The children don't know us and we don't know our kids and they grow up and grow up and grow up and they're people we don't understand and they don't understand us. Much of the trouble with children when they grow up, most of it comes because they don't spend time with their mum or with their dad. And why it is because we are so busy always rushing around. So when it comes to priorities, your family is really, really important. They're almost up there with number one. And also with your partner. Again, there are so many relationship problems in our society. And I know that you know, once you start to have children, sometimes life becomes so demanding and busy. Husband and wife, they drift apart. They don't know each other anymore simply because they don't spend time with one another. It's really important for you, even when you have kids, to remember that you also have a husband, you also have a wife. And every now and again, send your kids to the camp at the BF so mum and dad can have a bit of free time. Very efficient babysitting. Or whatever it is, give yourself some time out because your partner is also high on the priority list. And also like resting and having a bit of peace and quiet for yourself is also high on the priority list. That's why we have temples, that's why we have retreat centers, that's why we have places like the Chiang Rai retreat where you can come and chill out for a week or two. It's really good for you. You need it. It's important because if you don't learn to stop and learn to rest, as Angie was saying before I came up here, you'll die. And the old saying is that death, death is nature's way of forcing you to slow down. <laughs> now you really have to slow down, you can't do anything, you're dead. But it's much better to rest before you're dead. Where in Singapore do you find people resting in peace? The cemetery! Why is it only in the cemetery you can rest in peace when you can't enjoy it anymore? Isn't it important to learn how to RIP when you're still alive so you can enjoy it? 
So, it's important that you find some time to be peaceful for yourself. There was once a person rang up the monk. They called up the monk and said, can you come and do some blessing ceremony for me? And the monk said, sorry, I'm busy. And the person calling said, what are you doing? And the monk said, nothing. What do you mean you're busy? That's what monks are supposed to do. They're supposed to do nothing. Relax, be at peace. And the man understood, okay, you're teaching by example, you're doing nothing, very good, I'll call again tomorrow. So he called tomorrow and said, I need the blessing, can you come to my house and do the blessing? The monk said, no, I'm busy. What are you doing, said the caller. Nothing, said the monk. But that's what you were doing yesterday, said the caller. Yes, said the monk, but I'm not finished yet. Now that's really important to get doing nothing out of the way first of all. Once you've got that out of the way, then you can do something. <laughs> because if we don't learn how to do nothing, we don't learn how to rest and be peaceful. And our brain absolutely needs some rest. Even um, Louis Pascal, the French philosopher, he said years ago, about 300 years ago, all the problems of mankind come from not knowing how to sit still. Not knowing how to relax and be peaceful. All of your worries, all of your fears, much of your ill health, all comes from not knowing how to be still and peaceful. That's why we meditate. Meditate is the art of doing nothing. It is the science of just sitting there just being here, not trying to do anything or go anywhere. The real art of relaxing. And you get so peaceful and calm when you're meditating. This is another Buddhist joke. Now there's a few Buddhist jokes, real Buddhist jokes. There was this guy who went on one of these meditation retreats, like the one at Chiang Rai. And after he came back from meditation, he was so peaceful. He was so calm. He was so slow when he walked and when he did things because he wasn't rushing around anymore. And when he went to work, he was working at Singapore Zoo. So the head keeper saw how slow he was going and realized he'd just been on meditation retreat. And so he thought, what can I do with this guy who walks so slow and talks so slow? And the head keeper said, I know what you can do. Today, you can look after the tortoise enclosure. That's very suitable after you've been on meditation retreat. You can watch the tortoises because they go so slow. So he put him in charge of the tortoise enclosure. And when the head keeper went to see him at lunchtime, 
he noticed the door of the tortoise enclosure was wide open and all the tortoises had escaped. He asked him, what happened? And the man who'd just come back from the Chiang Rai retreat said, well, I just opened the door and whoosh. That's what happens when you go slow. Everything just goes slow and you're nice and peaceful. But, it's important to find that peace. That's a precious stone which we have to put in first of all because that actually empowers us. It gives us the energy and the clarity and the control over our emotions so we can become more efficient. After resting we can get more work done. After being peaceful we can get a clearer picture of things. People who learn how to put stillness and rest as a top priority in their life become far more successful. So really what you want to do in life, you want to uh, have a good job, have a good career so that you can look after yourself and your family and have good health and happiness. In order to do that, give yourself some rest, give yourself a break. Everybody knows that if you spend more time just relaxing in meditation, you have far better health. Who is the oldest man in the world, according to Guinness Book of Records right now? The oldest man in the world right now, Guinness Book of Records, is a Buddhist monk. He lives in Phuket, 115 years of age still going strong. You know why? Because he knows how to relax. When you know how to relax, then all of the worries and concerns vanish from you. You give that high priority, how to relax. An example of that and I tell this because there's lots of young people coming to the BF these days. You're going to have to do exams, big exams, important exams, and you've got to compete against all the other kids, not only in Singapore but sometimes throughout the world if you want to get into top university. As a Buddhist, as a member of the BF, you can get competitive edge. You can get a skill which your fellow students don't have, the ability to train your mind, to make it strong. And already uh, heard from Angie, I graduated theoretical physics with a good degree from Cambridge University. How did I pass those exams and do really well? This was my trick, my edge over my fellow students. I was the only Buddhist there. And I knew how to train my mind. 
This was 1972. Natural Science Tripos Theoretical Physics. All of the work you had done so far counted for nothing. Nothing at all. It all came down to a series of final exams. That's why they're called finals. We had a three hour paper in the morning, three hours of theoretical physics or quantum physics, and one hour for lunch, another three hours in the afternoon. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and even Saturday. Six days in a row. These days, Amnesty International wouldn't permit that. That was torture. That was abuse. But in those days, that's what we had to do. Three hours in the morning, three hours in the afternoon, hour for lunch, six days in a row. But I had my competitive edge. At lunchtime, at lunchtime, instead of having anything to eat, instead of studying my books, I relaxed. I put relaxation, the highest priority, even more important than eating. And I relaxed so much with half an hour meditation that when I came out of that meditation at lunchtime every day for those six days, my mind was so rested, so clear, so re-energized, I did really well in the afternoon exam. That was my trick, my edge. I knew how to relax. I mean really relax. And I put relaxation for half an hour in the middle of one of the most stressful times of my life, right at the top. And that's why I succeeded. That was the biggest rock, relaxation. And I put that in first of all. Everything else, it didn't matter. Look, I'd already done the work, I'd already gone to the lectures, I'd already done the revision. It was all in my brain somewhere, just trying to get it out in the right order, at the right time. That was the difficult part. And by learning how to focus the mind and rest relax, it all came out well. Now, I learned that as how to pass examinations. And I learned that how to give talks. I learned that how to deal with many stressful situations. Don't think that oh, Ajahn Brahm's a monk, he doesn't know what real life is like. Sometimes I have even more stressful situations than you have. You know right now, I'm not only, was it, director of the Brahm Centre, spiritual patron of the Buddhist Fellowship in Singapore, I'm also spiritual director of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia, the abbot of the Bodhinyana Monastery, the director of Dhammasara Nuns Monastery, the spiritual advisor of the Buddhist Society of South Australia, the spiritual advisor of the Buddhist Society of Victoria, the spiritual director of what Buddha, no, the, so, yeah, it was a director of the, um, what is it? I forgot. Director of Wat Buddha Dhamma in Sydney, uh, now the spiritual director of Sangha Mitarama in Melbourne. Oh, I've got so much work to do. But do I look stressed out? Do I look like I'm going crazy? Please say no. <laughs> Reason is because you know how to deal with this stuff. It's so easy. You only pick up one thing at a time. Stress is doing too many things at the same time. 
And you try and juggle so much. So really the priority, find out what's the most important thing to do and do that well. Forget about the other things till later. That's why procrastination is not just putting everything off. Put off the unimportant things. Do what's really important right now. Keep to that and you'll have a very, very powerful and successful life. What's really important in your life? There's this one lady in Australia. She thought her career was the most important. So she put off something she always wanted to do and that was having children. She waited until she was 60 before she had a kid. You know, it's really amazing because olden times, you know, 60 years old, no chance a woman can have children. But these days, you know, with uh, modern uh, medical technology, in vitro fertilization and goodness knows what else, it's amazing what people can do. So being a career lady, being quite wealthy, she went to you know, a big fertility clinic, managed to get pregnant, and because she had really good medical support, gave birth to a healthy lady, a healthy baby. And after she came home with her kid, of course her friends and relations came to see the baby. They came round to her house and she gave them a cup of tea. And after serving the cup of tea, they say, can we see the baby? And she said, no, not yet, not until the baby cries. What do you mean? Have another cup of tea. So they had another cup of tea. And after the second cup of tea, they said, can we see the son now? Said, no, no, you can't see it until it starts crying. They thought, this is really strange. So they had another cup of tea. And after the third cup of tea, they said, look, we didn't come here to have tea. We came here to see your new child, the new baby. And for a third time, the 60-year-old mother said, no, you can't see my child until it starts crying. They said, why? And she said, because I've forgotten where I put it. That's what happens when you're 60 years of age. You don't even remember where you put your baby. <laughs> That's a joke. But <laughs> is it really important you know, to have more kids in life? So, procrastination. Make sure you have your priorities right in life. What's really, really, really important for you? And when you know what's really, really, really important for you, you put that high on the agenda. And obviously your health and your happiness and that of your family is really important. If you want to know what's really important, we have an old spiritual uh, training in Buddhism. And it's actually, imagine this was the last day of your life. Imagine that there's only you know, a few hours left, you're going to die tomorrow morning. Imagine that, what would you do? Now when a person feels that they're going to die, then of course their priorities change. That's why people who have life-threatening diseases like cancers, or they have a heart attack, and they survive, that changes their whole life. What does it change? It changes their priorities. 
What before was not really important, when you know you're going to die, becomes very important. So if you were going to die tonight, what would be your priorities? What would you not put off until tomorrow? First of all, now telling your partner, telling your kids, your parents, how much you really love them. That's what you would do. So, you might die tonight. Highly unlikely, but it's possible. One night you're going to die. So how about this afternoon or this evening? Telling your mother, telling your father how much you really care for them. Telling them now, don't put that off until tomorrow. Telling the partner, the one you've chosen as your mate for this life, telling them how much you appreciate them, how much you care for them. Tell them this afternoon, this evening, don't put that off. That is important. Even if you don't die tonight, you still benefit a lot by following those important things. If you've done something which you are embarrassed about, you've upset someone, ask for forgiveness, ask, say sorry today. This came very clear to me when my father died. I was 16 years of age and of course I remember his death and his funeral service very clearly. At his funeral service, I had a big amount of guilt come up. There were so many things I should have said to my father, which I never said. And there's things I should have said sorry for. And now I couldn't do that. He was gone. He was dead. The only silly things, what really upset me, what I remember, silly things, I was a 15, 16 year old boy. And of course, the psychology of a young man going through puberty, you know, I was competing against my father. It's just what boys do, they fight, and even your father. It's just male competition, that's all. And the way that I fought with my father was, he liked listening to Frank Sinatra records. I liked listening to Jimi Hendrix. So when he put his Frank Sinatra on, I put my Jimi Hendrix on. Jimi Hendrix was far louder. I always won. And know, when he died at his funeral, I thought, so sad, what did I do that for? Why couldn't I let my father enjoy his Frank Sinatra records? And I felt so sorry for that. It really hurt me. It's only a small thing, but you'll find in life those small things hurt the most. And I realized from that experience, if I've upset someone, and if I've done something which caused them misery, I want to say sorry as soon as possible. I want to at least ask forgiveness. If they don't give it to me, at least I tried while there was still time. Otherwise, the moment does come, they're not there anymore. They're gone. If you've upset your father, if you've done something to upset your mother, Please ask forgiveness as soon as possible. It's really important. You don't want them to die with this unfinished business. So I gave that high priority and I give that high priority now. It's those 
social values, the family values, the friendships, you know, the love which we have together, that becomes really, really, really high priority. And when you think that maybe I'm going to die soon, when you've had a cancer, those priorities, you live every day in the moment and appreciating the small things of life, just being able to hear the sound of the birds. Don't worry about the bird being caught in this room over here. That's a very lucky bird. It's listening to the Dhamma all day. It's only a small bird. In its next life it might be reborn as an eagle. Or even get a human life where the bird's gone. So, birds listen to Dhamma. So, we try and make sure that our love and our care for one another are most important. There he goes again. Oh, he's actually got a nest in there. That's a very, very lucky bird. Having a nest in a Buddhist temple. But, learning how to be kind to one another becomes a high priority. So if you really want to find out what you want to put in your, in your um, jar, first of all, what's really most important for you, just imagine this is going to be the last day of your life and what you would do. A friend over in Sydney, he was one of these business people, he loved his family, but he thought the best thing he could do for his family is to have a successful business so he can send his kids to a good school so they can give them a good start in life. But like many such people, this is a true story, what happened to him, he went for his annual medical checkup a few days later, the doctor who was a personal friend called him at home. And the first thing the doctor said, is your wife there? If you receive a call from your doctor and the first thing that doctor said is your wife there, you're in big trouble. He knew that something was wrong. What's wrong? The doctor said, the results have come back from the pathology lab. Your blood tests. You're a friend. I have to tell you this. You've got a blood cancer. It's a rare form of cancer. No treatment possible. It's terminal. And for those of you who've ever gone for say a biopsy and the biopsy comes out positive, yes you have got cancer. Sometimes it's a shock. It's a bolt from the blue. You feel healthy but the results say you're very sick and dying. He took it well, but of course the first question he asked, as you would all ask, how long? And no doctor can tell how long it's going to be, but they get a good idea. He said two months, three months maybe, not four. You got a pretty good idea. Now that man, he thought he was in perfect health and now he had only maybe two, three, four months to live. What he did next, after talking over with his wife and his kids, he was living in Sydney. He'd always promised his family an overseas trip to Europe to see the sights. Australia is a long way away from anywhere. He wanted his family to have a last 
journey, a last tour which they could go together, enjoy each other's company and be their last and loving memory of a family together enjoying themselves on a trip around Europe. To get the money, he sold his business. He sold it. He wasn't so concerned of how much money he got. That wasn't important. He needed to sell it. He only had a couple of months left. And he bought first class tickets as you would do if it's your last chance to be with your family. A lot of money. First class airfares, first class hotels and a trip over Europe to see the sights. He said he had the tickets in his hand when the doctor called again. I don't know how to tell you this, said the doctor. Two people with the same surname. It's a true story. You can't make these stories up. You're perfectly healthy. There was a mistake made. That friend over in Sydney, he did not sue that doctor. He did not get angry at the doctor for making that mistake. He counts that doctor as his closest friend, as his teacher. Because he went on that holiday to Europe. He had a wonderful time with his family. It totally changed his life. Yeah, he had enough money to get another small business, only a small one, a business where he could spend more time with his wife and his kids. Because that experience, that close encounter with death, just rearranged his priorities of what's really important in life. Had a wonderful time and continues to have a wonderful time. He's a wonderful person and has a wonderful family as well. He realised that what his family really needed was not just the extra money for good schools or for good universities. They needed time together. They need the emotional wealth, the spiritual wealth, which is the most important thing in life. But, when it comes to making such decisions, find out what's really important. Make it a priority. And if you trust in that importance of the spiritual values in life, just make that decision. Don't look back. Very often when people have made a job, they've done what they know is right rather than what they know is wrong, it's always worked out. One fellow, he was one of the early supporters of my monastery in Perth. He moved to New Zealand. He had a really good job in a resort uh, looking after his wealthy clients. He had a free apartment, a free company car, a really good salary. He had a nice girlfriend in New Zealand. But then, one of the monks came to visit. And he asked for a couple of days off to look after the monk. The boss said, okay, a couple of days, but no more. He found out that the monk was travelling back from New Zealand to Thailand alone. He said, I can't allow this because the monk can't speak English. Who knows what might happen? He might get on the wrong plane and end up in Saudi Arabia. Who knows what might happen? So, he said, I have to travel with this monk. So he asked his boss, can I take another few days off you know, to accompany my master back to Thailand? The boss said, no, you've already had too much time off. And he said, look, this is really important to me. The boss said, no. 
I said this is really, really important. Can I take the time off? Absolutely no. Okay, said the boy, I resign. He resigned the job. And as soon as his, his girlfriend found out, she scolded him. You can't get jobs like this that easy. You've got to give up your car, give up the nice apartment, and who knows when you're going to get another job. The economy's not so good, you stupid boy. But he said, no, I have to do this. This is important. This is more important for me than keeping my job. So he went to Thailand. Now he took the monk back, spent an extra few days there. When he came back, he'd only been back a day when he landed a much better job, higher salary, better apartment, bigger car. <laughs> and he wrote to tell us that. He said, look, whenever you do something really good and important, it's good karma, trust in that karma. Whenever you're really putting off the lesser stuff for things which are more important, even the lesser things like the job, your, your finances, everything else will come together. So have a little bit of faith. So it's important in life to make those decisions and I know that much procrastination in life comes when people just don't know how to make decisions. They keep thinking about it, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? Should I marry that guy? Should I marry that girl? Should I take that new job? Should I give up my job? Should I become a monk? Yes, always become a monk. <laughs> but the trouble is when sometimes people worry so much they don't know how to make decisions. So the most important thing, the real thief of time in the title of this talk, the real thief of time is like worry. Worry about what's going to happen. Worry about what might happen. Because that takes your time away from enjoying this life. So please, the real thief of time is fear and worry. It means you can't enjoy where you are because you're always worried about what's going to happen next. The most important thing in life is to be able to enjoy this moment. And as I've mentioned many times, this is an important point. Where is your future being made? When is the only time you can do anything about your future? Right now, this moment, right in this moment is where your future is being made. So every time you start worrying about what might happen, you are neglecting your future. That's why it always goes wrong. Because you're putting your attention in the wrong place. Spend more time in this present moment. And if you have to make a decision, make the decision right now. Say sorry right now. Say I love you right now. Say I care right in this moment. Do it right now. This is the only time you have. And as long as you make a beautiful, wonderful, good karma in this present moment. This is what the Buddha taught. If you make good karma right now, you can trust this law of karma will mean your future will be happy, healthy and successful. This is the secret of success, understanding the law of karma. And it works right in this moment. So if you're kind, if you're generous, if you're good, if you're compassionate right now, you can trust that your future will be absolutely successful, happy and healthy. This is the only time you can do anything about your future. And the right thing to do is to do good karma right now. Be kind, be gentle, be generous, be forgiving, be peaceful right now. 
and then you know you're doing the very, very best. That means you don't have to fear, you know the rules of the game, you know how it works. And that's what I do all the time, I'm a very successful monk. And I don't worry about the future, just worry about the present moment, just be in the moment and the future looks after itself. And it's amazing just how much success you, know, you can have as a monk and how many people you can help and how, many, how much of a contribution you can make to the world, simply just by being in the moment and making this moment as kind, as beautiful, as wonderful as you possibly can. And if you have to make a decision, it doesn't matter what decision you make. It doesn't matter what road you travel on. It matters how you do the travelling. So whatever decision you have to make in life, just make it. It doesn't matter which way you turn. Because you can make a wonderful journey no matter what road you travel. It doesn't matter whether you go on the highway or the byway. What matters is how you do the driving. It doesn't matter what car you buy. The person behind the wheel is the most important. In other words, it doesn't matter what journey you take. It is the travelling. The way you do it is the most important thing in the world. So I find it's very easy to make decisions. I don't care what decision we make. Go left, go right, go straight ahead. So I know whichever way I turn, as long as I know the law of karma, as long as I know how to be peaceful, how to be kind, how to be generous, how to rest when it's time to rest, how to love when it's time to love, I know that I'll always be successful. So don't worry about decisions. Make them and see what happens. You can always make something out of anything. And that way, you always have lots and lots of time. At my age, 58, going on for 59 next August, some people keep saying, how fast time has flown by. Almost 60, towards the last years of my life, where's it all gone? I've had a wonderful time. The reason I've had a wonderful time, time hasn't flown by, is because I've been there. I've been enjoying my life when it's been happening. I haven't been wishing away days, months, years of my life for something to happen. Too often we're waiting for something to happen in the future. When I finish school, then I'll be happy. When I get my degree, then I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When I get divorced, then I'll get happy. When I get retirement, then I'll get happy. Why do we wish away so much of our life? It means we haven't got anything left. So another thing about procrastination, don't wish away anything of your life. Every moment, every day, every hour of your life is precious. So enjoy it. Be here when life happens and you will find when you get to my age, you won't think, oh, where's all my life gone? You will know that you've enjoyed your life, you've been there, you've had a wonderful time, you've had a wonderful journey, because you haven't been anywhere else. You've been in life while it's happening. You've been here. And that is the secret of happiness. Enjoy the journey. Don't look too far ahead. Instead, always be where you are. That's where life is. That's where the action is. That's what's most important. And that's how we don't procrastinate. And then there is no thief of time. Worry is the main thief of time. When you stop worrying, you have so much time. 
for yourself and for others and also for the Buddhist Fellowship. Thank you. Now, before we ask for questions, that's right, otherwise they get in big trouble with the boss. <laughs> we'll do a little bit of meditation, which is learning how to be here, not to go anywhere, not to try and get anything, just to be in life as it happens. So, if you'd like, just to close your eyes. Those who want to go toilet, please go toilet. That's why I assume they're going. Just sitting here. As if you've been on a journey, travelling so fast, and with your eyes closed, you're parking your car, so you can enjoy the view where you come to in the journey of your life whether you're young, middle-aged or old this is where you've come to what's it like just being here not trying to go somewhere else not planning what you're going to do after you leave not remembering where you've come from, but putting all your attention on where you are. Enjoying this moment which will never come again. And especially being with yourself and being kind to yourself. If you're not kind to yourself, the mindfulness will run away. How does it feel being you right now? Be kind to yourself as you open the door of your heart to yourself entirely as you happen to be right now. Open the door of your heart to all the sounds of the people outside enjoying their wayser. Open the door of your nose to all the fragrant smells of the food wafting in from outside. Be alive in this moment. Drink of this moment of life fully and totally, rejecting nothing. Because in this moment, in the sound of the birds and the children screaming, in the sound of the kids again, at the sound of my voice, in the world of fans, in the feelings in the body. This is the teachings of the Buddha. This moment is the Dhamma. Embrace it. Make peace with it. 
and you can be free. Enjoying a moment which will never come again. Now. Precious teachings which you'll never hear again. Now. This moment is the most important in your life because it is now. And you'll notice all your senses open up. When you embrace this moment, the suffering of fighting and controlling and trying to be somewhere else disappears. All suffering comes from you wanting to be somewhere else. Suffering is the gap between where you are and where you want to be. If you make where you want to be where you are, there is no more suffering. Want to be here and you're at peace. And you'll know how to relax. Just want to be here right now. This is all you have, this is precious. Hearing the sound of the kids again, the whir of the fans, the song of the birds, the rise and fall of your breath. This is Dhamma, this is life. Learn from it. Learn to make peace with it. And smile at this moment. Laugh at the present moment, smiling and laughter means you're at one with this moment. Not trying to go anywhere or to be anything, not trying to change the world, but being at peace with this world as it exists right now. Loving yourself, forgiving yourself. 
This moment is the only one you have. present moment the thief of time can't reach you in this moment there's no more procrastination at last you're meditating at last you're relaxing at last you're giving your relationship with your own self the most important place if you get that relationship right the one you have with you, everything else falls into place. Make peace with yourself and you know how to make peace with the whole world. Love yourself and you know the secret of loving another. I now invite you to count three more breaths, in, out, in, out, in, out. And at the end of the third breath that you count, open your eyes to come out from the meditation. Just three more breaths. Meditation is easy. Okay, very nice. Thank you, Ajahn Brahm, for the talk on meditation and time management. So now we'd like to open up the, to the floor for questions, uh, including the ones who are upstairs. If you want to bring your questions down, there is a whole group upstairs in a comfortable, cool environment. So. Okay, uh, perhaps what I can do is use one of the questions here to start the ball rolling. And this has to do with uh, one of the activities outside. What is the meaning of bathing the Buddha statue? The meaning of bathing the Buddha statue is such a hot day today in Singapore. The Buddha needs to cool off. So it's very kind pouring water to make the Buddha nice and cool. The original, that's only joking, the original meaning of actually pouring the water came from an ancient Indian ceremony. Whenever you bought something, you purchased something from somebody else, the owner would pour water from one vessel into another as a symbol of an exchange happening. We know that because there are carvings 
of the purchase of the Jetawana Monastery by Anata Pindika from Prince Jeta. This was one of the first and most famous monasteries in the time of the Buddha. And on that carving, the great merchant Anata Pindika brought the land and to formalize the purchase, instead of signing a contract, there was uh, Anata Pindika would pour the water from one vessel to another as saying that this is my money going to you and your land comes to me. It was an Indian symbol of transfer. And that's why whenever you do a transfer of merit, you'll find that sometimes we pour water from one vessel to another vessel. It's also it's, um, coming from that ancient Indian way of a transfer. What is mine is going to my deceased relations. And so really the symbol of pouring water originally came that you are giving something, in this case, to the Buddha. That's what it really came from. It's not washing away sins, that's Christian. It's not sort of bathing the Buddha. The Buddha's pure anyway. That's just a statue anyway. What it really should be doing is you're giving something of yourself today for the Dharma, for Buddha, for the BF or whatever. You're not just coming here to get something. You're coming here to give something. Sometimes to give your life to the three refuges and the five precepts. To give yourself in service to the betterment of humanity. To donate something of yourself to the service of others. So that's what it really should be doing. An act of giving, not an act of getting. Ajahn Brahm, I have a special place in my house where I have separated out for meditation. I have been reaping benefits from this, and, but a few months ago I was aware of a presence whenever I sit down to meditate. My mother thinks it's a deva. Could this be possible? Yes, that is possible. If that's the place of meditation, if that's the place you do really good things, it does attract such beings. If you have a bar, you don't attract any devas at all. In fact, you, you attract lesser beings. But if it's a place of meditation, it does bring sort of heavenly beings there. So if you feel a presence there, in a place where you meditate, it probably will be something special there. Uh, I've advised this for many, many years. I advised this to someone here a few days ago. They were always getting angry in their relationship. And they asked, how, something practical, how can I stop getting so angry? And I asked them, look, find a cupboard or a place in your house. Make that your temple, your sanctuary. Only do meditation there. Maybe you can listen to a few um, CDs on Dharma talks. Maybe you have a couple of books there. But don't do anything else other than meditate or listen to Dharma. And then you'll find over the weeks and months and years that little cupboard will build up energy. It will be a peaceful, quiet place. So that when you do have a stressful day at work, Instead of taking it out on your partner or your kids, go straight to that room, 
sit down and just relax and you find you can allow all the tension and all the stress just to fade away from you because that's a place where you do that all the time psychologically you find it very easy to do in that place I've done that for so many years there's one couple in Australia they made a little cupboard, their shrine area and they said one day that their two children had a fight a six-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son and a five-year-old son hit the daughter quite hard and hurt her and she was crying and screaming and for the very first time in her life she ran into that cupboard and sat down on the meditation area and the parents were so impressed even though the child didn't know, know nothing about meditation the child instinctively knew that was a safe place, a peaceful place a place to let go of her emotional hurt that her brother whom she loved had just hit her and that was just another uh, dimension to having a harmonious family another strategy at all which you can have in your house so if you do have a little cupboard or a corner of your room some place which is your holy area you'll find it will build up an atmosphere it will attract really good beings it will have uh, an aura of peace there and you find that whenever you are stressed out especially if you've had an argument go and sit there it's incredibly therapeutic you'll be able to let go and relax as long as that's the only thing you use it for Ashan Brahm, because I'm new to this practice of meditation I feel sleepy, what do I do? if you feel sleepy then go asleep remember it's not trying to do something or be something it's just be who you are, accept who you are stop fighting the world just open the door of your heart to your sleepiness it's not against any precept to be sleepy all it is is like sleep deprivation you're tired be tired stop fighting yourself let yourself be so if you want to be tired, be tired that's called love and that's how we relax so if you want to be sleepy please be sleepy is meditation good against stress? and for a calm mind I would also add it's good for insomnia oh my goodness it's the very 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 best for those things nothing beats stress more than meditation in fact it's meditation which I and other monks and other meditations teach to executives these people with high stress jobs now I teach them that other people teach them that because that's the only way they can cope so look you are doing really well for your career joining the BF this is a great step up the corporate ladder because if you know how to meditate and deal with stress you'll be a far better performer in your company this has already happened, it will happen even more over in the west if you can on your CV state that you are a meditator and you get someone like me to sign the form yes you can meditate then you're more likely to get the job why? because the boss knows that there's a person who knows how to deal with stress they know how to meditate which means they're far more efficient so it is a great positive and people are realizing it's a positive 
I get many referrals from doctors and from even dentists as well. Because people who are stressed out and the doctor sees that's the main... These aren't Buddhists. These are Christians, Hindus, anybody. Mostly just agnostics, atheists, doctors. And they send their, their clients to my temple to learn meditation. Why? Because it works. We all know it works. So it's great to lessen stress, great to lessen you know, all these problems we get in our modern workforce. And what's the other one? What's it's good for insomnia. We've already said that there was someone earlier that when I meditate I feel sleepy. You see, it works. <laughs> so anyway, there's a particular type of meditation. Already a couple of people this trip have asked me about insomnia. You go to the BF, you should have that um, uh, recording of the meditation I gave at Pokhaksi, the sweeping meditation. That is the very best for anyone who's got insomnia. I mentioned when I gave that sweeping meditation, a classic Buddhist type of meditation, there was one of my friends in Sydney, a psychologist, very smart girl who was making a fortune. She started the company sleeplikeababy.com and all she was doing was exactly what I taught a poor cup seat, the sweeping meditation. And she told me not only was she making a fortune, she was having a 100% success rate. People with insomnia were getting a good night's sleep just by learning this sweeping meditation and doing it while they were in bed before they went to sleep. And you don't need to pay anything for it except for the cost of the CD available from the BF. We give such a good service here. After a while you don't need to see the doctor, you can sleep well at night, no need for psychiatrists, free counselling from Ajahn Brahm or these other people who come here. Wow, what a good value for money at the BF. You can download the uh, sweeping meditation instructional CD from the website. It's under downloads, so you'll be able to get it from there. We also have a Friday sitting meditation uh, every Friday at, I believe, 7.30 or 8 o'clock. If you can check your newsletter. And we also do meditation once a month at Fort Canning. And you can join us there in the morning. And we also have family meditation class. Uh, once a month. So do check our website and also our newsletter for, for all the information. How do you handle annoyance when you hear people talking badly about each other and complaining and making negative comments? Jealousy is apparent in many people's lives and drives certain behavior or actions. What do you advise with regards to this? According to Buddhism, Anyone who speaks bad words about another will be reborn in their next life as a crow. Ga 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 ga. <laughs> so tell them if you say bad things about another, you're going to be reborn as a crow. <laughs> no, anyway, that's only a bit of a joke. But look, people do that. And why do they say bad things about another? They only speak hoping that they are heard. And if you don't do the hearing, then they won't need to do the speaking. So one thing to do is when you hear stupid, bad, 
spiteful words, don't listen to them. That's again, I keep saying this, that's why the human being has been born with two ears, one to go in, one to go out. If it's bad words, make sure they go right through and come out the other end. And you don't keep them. Instead, keep the good words, the kind words. So you have a little filter in your brain. Any stupid words, unkind words, I'm not going to even remember those. The kind words, the beautiful words, the loving words, remember those. I was told by a psychologist in Sydney recently, it's been proven in psychology that when you praise someone, they don't listen to it, it doesn't go in. When you praise, it does go in one ear and out the other. And the only way for praise to be captured by that person is you've got to keep praising them for 15 seconds minimum. So when you go home tonight, start talking to your wife. You're such a beautiful girl. You're just so wonderful. I love you so much. You're a great cook. You're so kind. I'm just so lucky to have met you, the most beautiful girl in the world. I really love you. You're really nice. 15 seconds. <laughs> That's the only way it goes in. But, blame or criticism, you stupid wife, that goes straight in immediately. Why is that? And it's because that we only can listen to the criticisms the praise is there, but we just, we're deaf to the praise. So one thing to do is stop listening to all the spiteful words and start listening to the words of praise, to the kind words, to the loving words. If you can't hear them yourself, then obviously there's not enough of them in the world, so you have to work hard by speaking words of praise and kindness and appreciation and gratitude. Speak them, and then more people will hear them. This is a very interesting question, because I'm sure living in Singapore, you're exposed to many types of Buddhism, and there are many interpretations and, and paths that are being preached. So this particular question is about the Amitabha's vow, of related to pure land practice. It is said that uh, people are inherently or incredibly evil, and incapable of goodness, so the only hope or faith that one should have is in the Amitabha's vow, which is supposedly purported by the Buddha, in order to help provide us with salvation. If that is so, what's the purpose of practice? Perhaps just chanting will do, right? <laughs> so obviously that's a practice only for those people who are inherently evil and bad. For everybody else, you can do something different. No, look, people aren't inherently bad. People aren't evil. Just look at the people next to you. There's so many good and kind people in this world. So, please never believe you know, words like that. Don't even believe what I say. Don't believe what's in the books. But use your own intelligence. Check it out against reality. Are people just evil? Are people inherently bad? In my experience, no. 
I met so many wonderful, kind, beautiful people. And I've met them in places like prisons. And it's wonderful to know that even in places you least expect goodness and kindness and love, you can find it. And if I can find such goodness and kindness in people in prisons, how much more goodness and kindness and love is there in an audience like this? So no, I don't agree with that. And I just look around me, I see that each one of you are capable of so much goodness and kindness and love and beauty. Look at what we've done in the Buddhist fellowship. How long have you know, we been really going, Buddhist fellowship? Ten years, look how much we've actually grown. If people were inherently evil, there would be no Buddhist fellowship. If they weren't good and kind and generous and give up their so much time working for each other and working for others, we wouldn't be here today. So people are good. They are inherently good. In my experience, people have got two bad bricks for every 998, so two bad bricks for every 998 good bricks. You're human beings. In the scheme of things, that's actually quite high. You've done pretty well to have a human birth, which means you're actually pretty high morality, on average. Because of that, yes, you can practice the Dharma. Yes, you can keep precepts, you can meditate, you can become enlightened. It can be done, today, in our age. Otherwise, I wouldn't be teaching you. People need money. So how do you balance between happiness and spending time with the loved ones and earning a living? Okay. Uh, here's a good example. Uh, I read this story in a, somebody sent me this from an engineering uh, magazine from UK. And I've mentioned this at many HR conferences, human resources conference where I've given speeches. There was a British company called Farrelly and Sons who won a prestigious award as best engineering company in UK that year. In one year, 12 months, they trebled turnover and doubled their profits. Treble turnover and double profits in one year. So they earned more money. How did they do that? By being kind. A simple strategy, they banned all overtime. They made it illegal in that company to do overtime. You worked your allotted hours and you went home. You couldn't take work home with you. Because they figured out, a very wise company, they figured out that the people working there, they needed to rest at home. If they had enough time with their family, they didn't have these family problems like arguments between husband and wife, trouble with their kids. Because they had a much more positive experience in their family because they had more time at home, when they went to work in the morning, they were rested, they were positive, and they didn't take all their family problems to work with them. It meant they were more efficient when they were working. And because they were efficient, kinder, staff turnover dropped to almost zero, productivity went up, because they were much more sensitive to their clients because they had no family problems to take to work with them. They didn't have any work problems to take to their family. Twelve months they treble turnover, double profits. 
What that proved is you can have the best of both worlds. You can have your happiness and you can have your money too. You can have your happy family and you can have your success. By spending more time with your family, you're actually resting, enjoying your home life, and when you go to work, you're not taking those problems to the workplace with you. And because of that, you're more efficient, more positive, you can be a much better worker if you have a good time back home with your family. Imagine what it's like having the problems with your family, arguments, trouble with your kids. When you go to work in the morning, can you really be productive? Now, half your mind is back, what am I going to do with my kid? He's getting into trouble at school. What am I going to do with my partner? He's got a mistress, I'm sure he's got a mistress. Can you really perform well when you've got all those worries? So, by spending time with your family, and getting that happiness, that security, it makes you a much more successful worker. Basically, you get the both best of both worlds. Look after your family and then you won't be wasting so much time and you'll be able to increase your earning potential. I would also add that many of the people who volunteer the Buddhist fellowship are highly successful people with uh, who are successful in their careers and yet they give time not just to the family but also in serving in the community and they find so much joy in doing it and it makes them a better person so really if we're balancing our time and indeed it makes us a better person all rounded and there's so much money to be earned but really how much money is enough right I have so many occasions have belief in going with the truth and not been willing to, to go with the lies in the organization and forsake promotions. But at least I walk away feeling proud of myself rather than giving in, uh, giving up your principles and at the end of the day get a promotion but you really feel lousy about yourself. So there are many choices in our lives and I think we have to take that choice depending on the principles that we live by and what's really more important to live with the person, i.e. yourself, as someone that you can respect or going home knowing that what you've done at work was not really admirable, but you got the promotion. So, something to think about. Ajahn Brahm, what's your take on deja vu and how does it relate to the topic of the mind and time today? Um, most deja vu is you're not remembering something you've seen before. Again, I'm a scientist and there is sometimes that you see something and you have the illusion you've been there before. A lot of times it's not really uh, seeing something in the past. I know this has to be fact because I've had deja vu but I've had deja vu and it's a new building. It hasn't been up more than a couple of weeks but I've been there before. It's impossible. And I've talked to a neuroscientist about this and it's just one of these weird things about the brain. You see something for the very first time and it's just the way the brain works, it thinks it's seen it before. It's just an illusion created by the brain.
I've got, I've just picked one more question. I'm really sorry if your question wasn't picked uh, because it is coming to 3.30. How does one reconcile the guilt of having to leave one's parents or loved ones to pursue one's dreams? So I don't know whether you're talking about becoming a monk or a nun. Uh, but there was one other question about Arjun Brahm. How did you make up your mind to be a monk? So maybe they're connected. Okay, yeah. Well, again, you know, there is one very important person who left his family to pursue his dreams. You know who that one is? The Buddha. If he didn't leave his family to pursue his dreams, we wouldn't have a Buddha. And in one sense, I left my family, I left my mother in London to pursue my career as a monk in Thailand. That's the only place I could really go to be a monk in those days. But I did it with my mother's consent. I remember asking her, I said, are you all right with me being a monk? And she said, I'd always remember this, but I don't mind you being a monk. It's wonderful that you're enjoying yourself as a monk, but I just, I wish you were a monk in a temple next door to where I lived. Because <laughs> mothers like to see their sons, they like to be with them. So just, she missed me. She hadn't, didn't mind at all I was a monk. So that's why we've all worked hard to build temples all over the world. So when people do want to become monks or nuns, they don't have to go too far away from their mothers. Fathers is not so important, but mothers, they really, really, really want to see their children. But, if it's a good parent, now the parent will actually encourage their children to follow their dreams. Because that's what a parent does. A parent doesn't own the children. They just are looking after the children. It's as if this being is put into your care for 20, 23, 24 years. You have a wonderful time with them, but you know you have to free them. You have to let them go. You have to let them go to pursue their career, to marry a boy or girl in a different place, in a different city. And it's hard to let them go, but you know you must let them go. They don't belong to you. You have to free them. And as I've mentioned, the greatest act of love is to free that person. Son, daughter, it's great seeing you, but my whole love is for you to be happy. And if you're happy in Los Angeles with another person, please go with my blessing, because that makes me the happiest. Real parents, with they know love, free their children. And when your child decides to marry someone, they will never be good enough. Never, ever. Why? It's because your daughter, your son is the most wonderful person in the world. And you think, your son, why are you marrying that girl? You can do much better than that. You look at your daughter, and why are you going out with that man? Someone once said, letting your daughter go out with a man is like entrusting a Stradivarius violin into the hands of a gorilla. <laughs> That's what it's like, letting your daughter go out with someone. She's a Stradivarius violin, you love her so much, and all boys are like gorillas. Now, you have to let your Stradivarius go out with a gorilla. The gorilla won't harm the Stradivarius. They do need that freedom, so please give your kids some trust. Trust that they know how to choose a partner. And if they do make a mistake, they learn from that. They have to learn from that. 
you can't just keep your children in a cage thinking that that's the safest thing for them. The greatest act of love is to free them and if they want to pursue their dreams in whatever way your job is to encourage them. I got a great father and I've often mentioned him to you. He was encouraging me to do anything. One of the stories I remember from my life I was maybe only about 13 or 14 and it was the annual day, the parent-teacher night where your parents went to the school, met your teacher so the teacher could tell the parents how their kid was doing. My father never told me what happened but he came back quite shaken. I found out from my friends what had happened. My father had almost had a fight with my teacher. I mean real boxing match. They were very upset at each other and I found out what had happened. I was already doing really, really well at school and my teacher had told my father that I was probably going to go to Cambridge. I was going to go to university and that really upset my father. The reason was that my father, he came from an ordinary working class home and for him, his son going to Cambridge he was taking his son away from him. That if I went to this big university I would no longer be part of my father's world and there would be a separation. And I understood enough psychology even then to understand why my father was initially shocked and upset. He loved his son and he wanted to be, me to be with him being the type of work, the type of society which he was in and Cambridge was creating this great separation, this great cultural gap that we would never understand each other. It was only fear. He soon got used to the idea and very proud of the fact that I was doing so well. But it told me just how much a father loves his son. He doesn't want his son to be taken away at first but he realises I have to let my son go. If he goes to Cambridge and lives in a totally different world which I can never understand, fine, please go son. I'll miss you but if I didn't let you be free and let you follow your success that would hurt me even more. Do you understand that? Please let your children be free even if it separates you. Thank you, Ajahn. Thank you, Ajahn Brahm. Let's put our hands together and thank Ajahn Brahm. Our heartfelt thanks for uh, spending Vesak with us this year, Ajahn Brahm. After 10 years, we finally got Ajahn Brahm to spend Vesak with us. This is the first time, so we're all very blessed. Thank you again. So this goes to show that with uh, patience and perseverance, wishes do come true, although it's 10 years later. Now I know that many of you have sat through in this hall, maybe not just once, but twice, three times, four times, and uh, persevering the heat and some of the discomfort, but I think it's a good reminder that this is how the third world country usually hold talks. And we often take the air conditioning for granted. 
But whenever we use air conditioning, it does add to the uh, environmental damage. So this is, you've all been very good in contributing to the environment health-wise. Uh, health so give yourself a round of applause. Now, I'd like to thank the organizing committee of this uh, wonderful Vesak Carnival and all those wonderful people out there who's woken up very early this morning to cook and for the past few weeks organizing the entire carnival and last night setting up all the stalls and the tents and, and all these volunteers who've been working tirelessly and all for the love of Dhamma as well as sharing the Dhamma with all of you. Let's give them all a round of applause. And in the past, I often forget to thank this group of people when I was the president. Now that I'm no longer president, probably because I'm less stressed, and so I can remember things better. And this group of people are the ones who are working tirelessly every day, sometimes no weekends, and they work through evenings just because we've got so many programs, and they are the staff of the Buddhist Fellowship. Please join me to thank this wonderful group of staff. And I'd like to invite Wailing. Wailing, can you come in, please? Now, Wailing's been with us, I think, almost five years, but she will be leaving our service, or she'll be leaving the Buddhist Fellowship to pursue something different in her life. And she's been the very patient, the sweet voice that you hear uh, over the phone. Please help me thank Wailing. Thank you, Wiley. Just want to acknowledge. So with that, uh, we'd like to invite Ajahn Brahm again or request from Ajahn Brahm a short blessing before we all disperse uh, this for the weekend. Okay, a special, another powerful blessing for you all. Sabha Buddha Nubhavena Sabha Dhamma Nubhāve na sābha sāṅkhā Nubhāve na bhūta ratanāṁ Dhamma ratanāṁ sāṅkha ratanāṁ Thinnāṁ ratanānāṁ Anubhāve na caturāsīti sahāsa Dhamma Kanta Nubhāve Na Pitaka Thaya Nubhāve Na Jina Sāvaka Nubhāve Na Sābhe Te Roga Sābhe Te Bhaya Sābhe Te Antaraya Sābhe Te Upadawa sabete, dunimita sabete, our mangala wina santu ayuadako, danawadako, siriwadako, yasawadako, balawadako, Vana Vada Ko Sukha Vada Ko Hotu Sabada Dukha Roga Bhaya Vera Sokha Satu 